Beginning in uh, November, we started a study through the Gospel of Mark. And Lord willing, we will end uh, on Easter Sunday morning as we look through this uh, incredible record of the life of Jesus. Over and over again, from the very beginning of Mark, we've already been hearing uh, that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God, who came to save His people from their sin. He demonstrated His power again and again. And uh, this Jesus that's presented is worthy of our devotion. Uh, He is worth sacrificing your life to follow. He's worthy of your highest honor. But I want to point out to you that even when we gather to honor Jesus, we can get distracted from doing so and not accomplish it. That even when we go to do good things for Jesus, we can fail to get that right. It's like the entertainment headline from this last week. Fiji Water Girls steals show at Golden Globes. Now, if you're like me, you didn't watch the Golden Globes. You don't even know what they are, really. It's an award show. But after the fact, heard a lot about it. Um, See, everyone's gathered there to see who wins best actor, actress, the, the paparazzi are scrambling to get the best pictures of the celebrities as they pose on the red carpet. But instead, some unknown non-celebrity got all the attention. The Fiji water girl. She's the one in blue, leering behind almost every single photograph on the red carpet. And so the internet basically broke as it was fascinated with this gal who no one but her parents knew her name until that point. So, because of her photo bomb, no one is talking about Glenn Close or Christian Bale winning Golden Globes. They're talking about her. And Fiji Water was ecstatic. And it made Jamie Lee Curtis more than a little upset. My point here is that there are Fiji Water girls in all of our lives that can distract us from giving God the attention, the honor, the glory that He deserves. So I want to ask the question this morning, what gets in the way of glorifying Jesus? What gets in the way of us honoring, giving the attention to Jesus that He deserves? As we study Mark chapter 9 this morning, there are two situations that show us that. Two situations when we can fail to glorify Jesus. And this can happen to any one of us. So let's look at each of these scenes, these two scenes, and and discover what gets in the way of glorifying Jesus. Mark 9, verse 2, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This, by the way, is an incredible event, an amazing event. Jesus' glory, the perfect Son of God who existed before time, His glory was veiled, it was hidden when He left heaven to be born in Bethlehem. And now that glory is revealed just a little bit to these three disciples. They got a glimpse, that word transfigured, the Greek word is metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. There's a a change, a transformation. 
The the dazzling brilliance of Christ's perfection radiated from him. And even his clothes were metamorphized. They they were changed to a brilliant otherworldly glow. Understand, Jesus did not put glory on at this moment. He let the glory out in that moment. He showed himself for who he was. His outward appearance was transformed to match his inner nature, radiant, luminous, and holy perfection. As you can imagine, the disciples never forgot what happened on that mountain. John, in his gospel, he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Peter also wrote, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. It was an amazing event. And then something else happened. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So two of the greatest figures in Israel's history show up. Now, how did Peter, James, and John know who they were? They weren't wearing name tags, I'm pretty sure. I don't know, we're not told. But why Elijah and Moses? Why those two? Clearly, Moses is one of the greatest human figures of all time. And he represents the law, the law that God delivered to his people. And Jesus came to fulfill that law. He came to supersede that law. And Elijah, he represents the prophets. And Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus is the greatest prophet. He's arrived. And Moses and Elijah are there to confirm that Jesus, this is the one you've been waiting for. He's the real deal. They are witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God, the goal of all previous revelation, the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. And Jesus is glowing with glory, and he's chatting with these two VIPs. Verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You know, there are two kinds of talkers, those who have something to say and those who have to say something, and that's Peter. Now, in all fairness, he's scared. You can imagine how frightening it must have been. But Peter knew whatever was happening here, this is important, and he says, let's capture this experience. Let's make a dwelling for each of you. And the word tent there refers to the kind of shelter or booth that Israelites made with leafy branches. And Peter wanted to construct something right there on the spot to savor that moment. And his response is absolutely inappropriate. Absolutely inappropriate. And here's how we know. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly... Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now imagine making a mistake so bad that God yells at you from heaven. That's what happened here. Whatever Peter wanted to accomplish by making three tents, it was inappropriate. For one, he was putting Jesus on the same level with Moses and Elijah, which is exactly the opposite of what he should have understood from this. The whole reason they were there was to point to Jesus as greater, as the ultimate fulfillment of everything. And so God the Father has to break in and say, pay attention to my son. 
And then he takes Moses and Elijah away so they don't get distracted anymore. And only Jesus is left because he is supreme. He is preeminent. He is Lord of all. So grasp this from that scene. Fragmented worship fails to glorify Jesus. Let me say again, there are all kinds of Fiji water girls drawing our attention from Jesus. And I have no desire to upset anyone, but I am likely going to make some of you unhappy. When we gather for worship, we can get fragmented by good things that are not the greatest thing. Example. In our hymnal, we have a section called Patriotic. You turn to 571 and it's My Country, Tis of Thee. Good song. I like that song. The first three verses are a worship song to our country. Verse 4 is pretty good. But the first three are worshiping our country. I love our country. I would say that those three verses have no place in any corporate worship gathering. They're not worship songs to God. 572, America the Beautiful. Beautiful, wonderful song. It's a little bit better. It basically is a love song to our country, but praising God for it. That's a little bit more acceptable. I love my country, but I must never confuse honoring her with honoring God. Never, never, never. Churches all across this country are doing that. It's blasphemy. I love my wife. But if I was to have us all do a corporate reading of a poem in praise of Amy, that would be blasphemy. It wouldn't even score points with her because she knows it's wrong. I was at one of the largest churches in the United States a number of years ago when the entire service was given over to honoring fathers. I'm a father. That's good. But it was so far over the top and so focused on honoring fathers, I had to get up and walk out. And I've seen worship services that were more about honoring the preacher or honoring the band or honoring the denomination or a political leader or capitalism. And I would tell you that the American church is weak because it has fragmented worship with all kinds of things. Patriotism, social justice, humanitarian aid, tradition, entertainment, money, life improvement skills, Christian celebrities, and the list goes on and on. And the voice of God booms from heaven and says, put away your distractions. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And our personal worship gets fragmented when we're more consumed with our business than with God. When our enjoyment of family is greater than our enjoyment of God. When our pursuit of, of sports or success or education or hobbies or entertainment is more passionate than our pursuit of God. When we give far more effort to social media than our connection with God. When we care more about pleasing people than we care about pleasing God. Fragmented worship. So, they uh, leave the mountain. 
verses 9 to 13 say they're coming down the mountain. And as they're coming down, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this just yet. Wait till I have been risen from the dead. And this puzzled them. They still couldn't figure out what that meant. Uh, and as they're discussing this, they reach the rest of the disciples, the other nine disciples, who have a crowd around them. And these nine disciples are, are arguing with the scribes. And so Jesus asks them, well, what's going on here? What's this about? And a man speaks up and he says, Jesus, I was bringing my son to you because he's demon-possessed. And the description we have of this boy is that he's in serious trouble. What the father describes here is more than, than just epilepsy or a seizure. This boy is being assaulted by a demonic force. Satan, as he has been throughout Jesus' ministry, is hard at work trying to hinder the mission of Jesus. Now that man is there because as we've been reading all the way through this gospel, the crowds are always around Jesus looking for healing. They want to touch him. They, they want to get close to him. They, they want to be healed. They're following Jesus everywhere. And this man came so that his son could be healed. But when he got there, Jesus wasn't there. He was up on the mountain. Notice what happens. Verse 8, 17 18. The father says, he has a spirit. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So the failure of the nine disciples to cast out the demon was the cause of this disagreement. Perhaps the scribes were ridiculing the disciples' powerlessness. Uh, maybe they called them phonies. I don't know. But the disciples were unable to do what Jesus had done many, many times. In fact, what they had done before. Now look how Jesus responds. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, doesn't that sound harsh? Why didn't Jesus say, you know, good try, boys. At least you gave it a shot. You'll do better next time. Nope. He calls them faithless. Now, they've been with him for three years, and they still don't get it. And remember, back in chapter 3 of Mark, he had given them the authority to cast out demons in his name. In chapter 6, it says they did it many, many times, but not this time. Jesus said, bring him to me. As they bring the boy to him, the spirit in the boy, the evil spirit reacts when it sees Jesus. The spirit throws the boy into convulsions. He rolls on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. And the boy's father says he's been like this for years. The spirit has thrown him into the fire. He's thrown him into the water trying to destroy him. Have compassion on us, Jesus. Help us. And Jesus said, verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now the issue wasn't whether or not Jesus was able to do this. The issue was, would the father believe? And what a great response he has. It's instantaneous and it's very appropriate. I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's a perspective all of us should have because which one of us believes enough? Who, who among us feels our faith is sufficient for all things? See, real faith is not something you store up until you have enough to spend. It's risking all you have, no matter how small and weak that faith is, on Jesus. Risking it all on Jesus. So based upon that profession of faith, Jesus orders the Spirit to come out and commands it never to come back. And after shrieks and convulsions, the boy lays there like a corpse. Many in the crowd thought he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and the boy was alive and well. Jesus goes into the house. 
The disciples are with him, and they can't wait to ask him this question where nobody else can hear. And they say, what went wrong? Why couldn't we heal the boy? We believe. We're on your team. So why did we fail? Very important. Verse 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now that word kind, the the Greek word is genos, and it it means a type, or a nation, or a race. This spirit was in a different league of any of the other ones that they'd ever encountered. It was above their pay grade. But apparently the disciples went into this thinking that they had the power in themselves, and they failed to depend upon God. They did not call out to God in Jesus' name. Now, by the way, some versions, you might have one of them, there are very few, but some versions include two more words in this verse, the words and fasting. See, years after Mark wrote this, some scribe added the words and fasting to prayer. Why? Because prayer seemed too simple. It it has to be better than that. There, There must be more to it. But Jesus says simply, they didn't pray. Why why couldn't we deal with this? You didn't pray. Trying to help out this man and his son had not occurred to the disciples to ask God. And their lack of prayer shows their belief was more in themselves than in God. They're trusting in their own knowledge, their own technique, their own experience, their own position, and not in Jesus. So, here's the second part. Prayerless ministry fails to glorify Jesus. Prayerless activity of any kind fails to glorify Jesus. And sadly, just like the disciples, prayer is often not our response in dealing with life. We want something more active. Because doing something about our problem is much easier and more natural than praying about it. Uh, Years ago, there was a a whole bunch of guys uh, going away. I think it was just one overnight on a fishing trip. And we got in a caravan of cars. It was the, the drive was about two and a half hours away. And I got into vehicle with Chuck and several other guys. Chuck was driving. Now, he, we all got in, and Chuck said, are you all set? And we said, yes. And he said, let's pray. And, uh, and he did. Heavenly Father. Great prayer. We're all, now, we're the last ones out of the parking lot. But still, it's good. You pray before you leave. That's good. Half an hour in, Chuck says, i got to stop for gas. So... We stop for gas, a couple of us get out a little bit, and, and Chuck says, everybody in? And he said, let's pray. Heavenly Father. Okay, well, we just prayed like half an hour ago. We're not even out of the city yet. I think this should cover us, but that's all right. That's good. It's good. We're going to come in last, but that's good. Half an hour later, we take a rest stop. Everybody gets out. Chuck gets everybody in. He says, let's pray, Heavenly Father. Okay. We took another stop. 45 minutes later. I don't even know why. Before we start again, Chuck says, let's pray. And he prayed. So it took us four hours to make that trip. Now, for somebody who just likes to go, this was hard for me. I think it's great. Chuck, nobody else wanted to ride with him after that, but I did, because I'm so spiritual. I did. Now, what, might that be a little over the top? Maybe. But I think in principle, it's exactly how we should approach life. 
to, to, to constantly be looking to God for everything, to, to speak to him about anything. You can't imagine how much ministry I've done without praying. You'd leave right now. See? I have made so many decisions without asking God first. And so have you. And what that means is I'm acting in my own power. I'm trying to do good things using only my skills. I'm trying to solve problems with only my smarts and my ideas. I'm tackling challenging situations with only my years of experience. I'm seizing opportunities with only my charming personality. I'm trying to make a difference using only my words and the best arguments. And the problem with all of that is even if it turns out fine, I failed to glorify Jesus. It's exactly what I've done. R.A. Torrey said, we're too busy to pray. And so we're too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. If you like the disciples and their flurry of problem-solving activity, we can neglect to do the very thing we should. So in whatever you encounter today, rocks too heavy to lift, giants too strong to beat, knots too untangled to unravel, disappointment too heavy to bear, Jesus says, just pray in faith. Nothing is impossible when you pray believing. And so I would say make Jesus the center of your celebration and the source of your strength. And that must be true for anyone who wants to experience forgiveness, to become a child of God. This world is broken. It is lost in sin and darkness, separated from the perfection of our Creator God. But in His great love, the Father sent His Son on a rescue mission. Jesus became human, lived among us, and revealed His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. But Jesus' rescue mission was different than anyone imagined. It was to suffer and die for the sin of the world. He took the penalty of my sin on himself, sacrificed his perfect life on the cross to pay the price I deserve to pay, and rose from the dead to guarantee it's true. And Acts 10.43 says, Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin through his name. And so for every one of you who claims to believe, Jesus must be your center and your source. See, fragmenting your worship on anything other than Jesus robs him of glory. Doing good things without calling on Jesus robs him of glory. Last Father's Day here at CBC, we showed a, a, a video for fathers, and, and uh, it, was, it was cute, it was, it was heartwarming, the, the tagline, you, you might remember, was, you've got this. So it showed dads in a bunch of situations and being encouraged with, you've got this. You know, it was funny, the one dad that was handed the baby with a dirty diaper, you've got this. That was funny. But I would say that at its base, that video is not theologically true. Because it's my job to preach the gospel to you. And the gospel says, you don't got this. You don't. And that's why you need Jesus. 
If for no other reason our time together today is to remind us to turn from our self-reliance and our self-focus and cling to Jesus, he's the only way to the Father, the Savior of all who believe. He alone is worthy of worship. He's the light in your darkness, the comfort in your grief. And so I point you to him today in your joy, in your sorrow, in the good times or the bad. The glorious Jesus is enough. I invite you, if you... No, this chorus, it's 100 years old. Some of you did it in youth group probably. Would you stand with me and join in singing as we close with this song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Receive this benediction. Now to Him who's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.